is Sit Rep on BFBS with Kate Chabot. betting on Egypt and why does it matter? What impacts are events in Syria having on the rest of the Middle East? A study says the Taliban's planning to retake Helmand. How are they going to do it? Homeless Trident? No way, says the MOD. And what happens on day one for the new Chief of Defence Staff? According to senior American officials, the U.S. is going ahead with plans to deliver four F-16 fighter jets to Egypt despite the political unrest in the country. It comes as Washington is continuing to evaluate last week's overthrow of President Mohamed Morsi by the army. U.S. massive military aid to Cairo would have to be cut by law if the removal of the Islamist leader is determined by Washington to have been a coup. Well, I'm joined today by Professor Michael Clark, director of RUSI, the Royal United United Services Institute for Defence and Security Studies, and our defence analyst Christopher Lee. Hello to you both, uh, yes, Professor, Professor Clark. First of all, what does the U.S. State Department really think about Egypt? It, it sees this as another turn of the wheel <clears throat> in terms of the revolution. That clearly, the, the Egyptian revolution is not going to go easily. Um, on the other hand, that there is a sense, I think, that this may not work out so badly if the interim government can stick to an electoral timetable and hold elections that are in some way representative, somehow persuade the Muslim Brotherhood into an electoral process next February. But that's quite challenging, and if they can't do that, then there'll be yet another turn on the revolutionary wheel because the Brotherhood, Muslim Brotherhood, they, Morse was, a, was an incompetent government, but now they go away... Not not as the government of incompetence, who had no economic policy, who, who had no sense of democracy. They go away as the group who were, who were the victims of a military coup. So it gives them, a, gives them a, a, an identity that they're more comfortable with, to be honest, than, than that of a bad government. Uh, and that American military support I mentioned in the introduction, 1.1 billion, is it? Um, yes. Who else is putting money into Egypt? Saudi Arabia and the UAE, uh, they're, they're, they're flooding uh, Egypt with cash at the moment uh, because they, they've got their own game to play there, but they desperately want to have some influence over whatever happens next in, in Egypt. And so there's no shortage of cash, but how that cash is spent and, and the infrastructure and all the problems that Egypt has got really make... It's, it's not that the cash is irrelevant, but by itself the cash is only 20% of the solution. Christopher Lee, what do the <coughs> Saudis and the UAE want to get out of Egypt? There are two sides to this. You've got a competition between uh, Qatar and Saudi Arabia for influence. The Saudi Arabia's on Tuesday pushed through an $8 billion deal for the Egyptians, and money will keep it coming, they said. The other people said, if we do this, this is good because we'll, 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 we'll enforce our, our influence in Egypt on what might come out of Egypt, and that will negate the possibility, the, which I don't think will happen, but the possibility that the Americans might be forced into reducing their funding. I don't think they will. But this is why the State Department, uh, Kerry's State Department, for example, says that wasn't a coup. That was an intervention. When it becomes a coup, i.e. the military don't quit and carry on, then the Americans are going to be under uh, congressional pressure to reduce the budget. The other thing is that the Americans and the Saudis recognise together that the solution to what's going on in Tahrir Square 
because, you know, have another deal, you'll have another Tahrir Square next year, is going to take a decade to sort. You cannot fix the Egyptian economy enough to satisfy all parties. And don't forget, it's not just uh, Morsi and co versus the guys in the square. There are 16 parties that got to be satisfied one way or another, 16 political parties that took part in the last elections, and they're still there. Yeah, Michael Clark, you mentioned earlier that uh, the Muslim Brotherhood might quite like being portrayed as victims in all of this. How do you see things go? I mean, Christopher says 16 parties there. What's it, who are they exactly, and what is each side trying to get? The, the thing about the Muslim Brotherhood and the Al Nur Party, who are, um, I mean, more uh, radical than they are, the Salafist Party, is that they do represent something. That they know what they what they represent. They don't represent totality of government or an economic policy or anything else, but they represent something in terms of religious ideology. <clears throat> Most of the other parties don't represent anything very broad, but they are, by our standards, more modern parties. And the one that, that matters the most is a, is a group of parties, the National Salvation Front, which uh, Mohammed El-Baradeh, who was the ex of the uh, International Atomic Energy Authority, a very, very internationally well-respected Egyptian, who has, be, uh, has been made, as of yesterday, I think, vice president for foreign affairs, which is appropriate, but not, interestingly, prime minister. There was too much opposition to that. But Al-Baradeh's influence is still high, and the National Salvation Front, I think, are the, are the group that are probably most significant within these, these plethora of other major parties. Christopher. Yeah, yeah. Michael just mentioned the uh, Al-Nur party, the Salafists, the Salafi. They come from the south. They and they want to impose a sort of a very fundamental the, version oh, of they Islam, are, don't is, they? They are Islamists. They are far more Islamists. They're, they're at the top end of the Islamists, if you like, of Muslim Brotherhood, except that they stand alone. Give you some idea of their power. In the election, uh, the uh, Freedom and Justice Party, which is the Brotherhood uh, lot, they got just over 10 million votes, right? The uh, Salafists, they got, or Al-Nur party... They got seven and, a, seven and a half million votes. The rest of them are down into hundreds of thousands, just a few thousands and a couple of million. That's how important these people are. And they're far more committed than any other party indeed. Just just briefly, Michael Clark, how dangerous is the situation in Egypt? Because we've seen before when, when a country loses stability in this way that it's a very strong opportunity for al-Qaeda, isn't it? Yes. Um, and Egypt has always been, I mean, going back 40 or 50 years, Egypt is a sort of bellwether for the mood across the Middle East, although Egyptians are always very distinctive, they're not the same as other uh, Arab peoples of the Levant, but nevertheless, Egypt is a And, and the Levant social... people who, who don't know what Levant is. Sorry, I mean, Syria and Lebanon and, and Iraq, you know, the area that we think of traditionally as the, as the sort of western part of the Middle East, not necessarily the Gulf. Um, and the, the, the Egyptians, in a sense, are, are trendsetters socially, <clears throat> and that is the case here. Um, the, the army is still the determinant of all of this, and, and, and uh, a lot of people said when the Egyptian revolution started, don't worry, it'll be relatively stable because the army is the sort of pressure valve, it'll keep control. And that, that in a way, is happening now, but we may reach a point where the involvement of the army seems simply to be unacceptable, and, and the, the signs are that Egyptian society may be polarising, and polarising in a violent way. I hope that isn't happening. I hope that the, if the violence subsides, then the polarity might subside. But if it doesn't, then Egypt is in really new territory. Christopher? I'll tell you, one of the most unpopular people in Egypt at the moment, 
And this says it all is is Ann Patterson. Ann Patterson is the the American, the American ambassador, ambassador. Mm-hmm. and. It is a focus on America has not come to the aid of people that they expected. Let's just move on briefly um, to Syria because a paper by your organisation, Rusi, this week, Michael, has said that the events in Cairo, as important as they are, are distracting attention away from the bigger game being played out there. Yes. What's it saying exactly, <coughs> the argument in the paper? Because the, the sectarianism of the Syrian civil war is now so deep that it is spilling over into real sectarianism again in Lebanon and is uh, and, the, and the real loser from this may be Iraq and in a way our headline is is you know will Iraq survive the Syrian civil war and the, the war in Syria may go on for quite some time it may go on for another two or more years um, and in that time although Syria will still almost certainly continue to exist under whoever wins or loses from that civil war it's not clear that some of its neighbors will and, and Iraq is in real trouble, real trouble. And the, the possibility of fragmentation in Iraq is now greater than at any time uh, since the invasion of 2003. Lebanon also. Jordan is not in, uh, suffering a fragmentation crisis, but it is suffering immense pressure from the fallout from Syria. So the problem is that Syria is now encapsulated across this, this area, the Levant. It's encapsulated a deep set of fault lines, and it's, it's pushing them all apart. Um, Obama... President Obama last week uh, signed off a two and a half month reinforcement of Iraq by American troops. That's Americans going back into Iraq. That is how serious it can be seen in America. And America's got it right on Iraq at the moment. Michael, when, when you look at a situation like this and you talk about these fault lines and the implications, I mean, with hindsight, you can say perhaps things should have been done differently. And it must be, for someone like yourself, quite a hand-wringing situation. What do you think the, the, the West could have done? Yeah, it, I mean, in a, in a way, um, the... the, the the mistakes that were made after the invasion of Iraq in 2003, and those mistakes were astonishing, the, how badly handled the whole reconstruction process was, and that's historically well understood now that, that it was handled very, very badly. But we, we got ourselves into, into a real strategic decline, and uh, you know, the, the invasion of 2003 can only be judged, in my view, as a strategic blunder, in the sense that all of the, all of the forces that oppose America and the United, uh, the United States and the West, mainly in, in Iran, are strengthened by it, and those forces that were, are our friends are in the Gulf have been weaker uh, across the Middle East and the Gulf have been weakened by it. And, and what we're facing now, you know, in this region, is a sort of balkanization possibility, not that all states will collapse, but that we'll end up with some states that are weaker, some semi-states, some contested areas, some completely ungoverned spaces, and some assertive enclaves. So we may end up with a series of different statuses for political communities, which will be very, very difficult to regard as stable. And do you think the sending of arms would still be considered to Syria? The sending of arms to Syria is really all about expressing a commitment to the uh, uh, anti-Assad opposition. The the things that would make a big difference in Syria would be a no-fly zone, a real no-fly zone, or intervention to safeguard chemical weapon stocks, and that would be either of those things would be taking a big step into the civil war. I don't think we're there yet. And in terms of this balkanisation that Michael's talking about, Christopher, um, you're saying Morocco might be next. Uh, What's happening in Morocco? Morocco's got a king. It's also got a government which is very pro-Morsi, and, and he is a member in their sort of Muslim brotherhood as well. What's happened is that the main opposition that supports the government, six ministers have just walked out this week. 
and they've walked out because he, which was a modest Islamist government, is becoming too Islamist. It's becoming too politically Islamist. That is the sort of sentiment that you hear expressed on Tahrir Square. Watch Morocco, see which way that leans now. Gentlemen, stay with us. Sit rep with Kate Still to come in the wake of the Danny Nightingale case, we talk about battlefield trophies and the heads up on the new chief of defence staff. What's the new boss really like? PFBS Sit rep. Is the Taliban planning to retake Helmand once foreign forces withdraw? A detailed study of the fighting in the province from the Taliban's point of view says it is. The study, published by the international affairs think tank Chatham House, also says British mistakes early on made matters worse. Well, we're joined now by one of the report's authors, Professor Theo Farrell, head of the Department of War Studies at King's College London. Professor Farrell, good to talk to you today. Tell us about how the research was carried out exactly. I understand there were interviews with some 53 Taliban commanders and fighters. Yes, it was quite a challenging study to undertake, but of course incredibly important, because most of the assessments that have been undertaken of the campaign to date, trying to explain obviously what's gone wrong, why has the war lasted so long, have been from the Western perspective. Uh, so we hired a number of Afghan-based researchers, and these are very experienced researchers, mostly journalists by training, and through their contacts they were able to reach out and interview um, 53 Taliban commanders in Helmand province and some 49 commanders across Afghanistan as a whole and into Pakistan. The report's highly critical of British tactics early on in the campaign. Can you give some examples of where you say Britain's military went wrong? Uh, Went wrong for a start in underestimating the scale of the challenge. Uh, We document how the Taliban snuck back into Helmand from 2004 onwards. Um, And so by 2006, when the British arrived, the Taliban were well entrenched in most of the districts in Helmand. Uh, And this was missed by by our intelligence. And so the force that went in was too small to stop this resurgence of Taliban, uh, but was large enough to alienate the population. And so what happens is, and this is Mike Mike Clark and Rusey have done a very good study on this also, uh, when the British task force was pulled up into the northern towns to try and stop the Taliban overrunning them, um, the, the only way they could repulse Taliban attacks was through very considerable use of firepower, and this, of course, uh, caused great disruption to local populations. And then, just if I may, just to give you another example, in 2007, uh, British forces uh, undertook, um, it, attempted to uh, stop poppy, you know, undertook counter-narcotics operations as part, as part of this wider effort. Uh, but the thing is that half of all wealth in Helmand is generated through poppy cultivation. So they went after the livelihoods of most of the people in in the province and this caused a general uprising against the British. So you have been critical about the lack of understanding by the military commanders and and that is an example also of something that you said was a a policy that was wrong. Though you can't really learn these things overnight because when you go into a country as we see before there isn't an awful lot of time to do assessments on the ground is there? Yeah, I mean, I mean, the overall context is the British get better. They adapt, they learn. Um, so we see by 2007 and 2008, uh, British forces show more restraint. They gain better awareness of the local environment. So there's no question but that British forces develop um, a more productive approach to counterinsurgency. And then in 2010, we see a major shift. I mean, the influx of American U.S. Marines from 2009 onwards enable a major offensive in central Helmand in 2010. And so we do see at ISAF working with Afghan partners, do secure the centre of Helmand and then very considerable progress in terms of governance and development. You talk about um, how the Taliban are planning to take back Helmand. Did they sort of give any idea about what their uh, their campaign would involve? 
I mean, no, I mean, to be honest, I mean, our report mostly focuses on the evolution of the Taliban campaign and in particular strategic adaptation by the Taliban. So what we see over this period of time, uh, certainly from 2009 onwards, is the Taliban improved centralized command and control. So command from the military commission in Quetta, uh, which is trying to... better direct operations by different field units in Helmand, achieving more coordination in their efforts. Um, And the other thing we do show, which is interesting, I think, is that in 2012, I mean, the Taliban are still under immense pressure. So we estimate around 20% uh, attrition in Taliban field units. And nonetheless, they are maintaining their their coherence. And the conclusion we draw is this demonstrates the very strong local roots that the Taliban have. These aren't $10 a day Taliban. These are deeply committed fighters. And so the overall message is a slightly contradictory one, but that's the way life is. On the one hand, Taliban field units are worn down. There's no doubts but that there is broad support among Taliban commanders for negotiations, for some kind of talks, albeit on terms that are acceptable to the leadership. Yeah, indeed. I'm just going to touch on that. Uh, Christopher Lee and Professor Michael Clark are still with us. Um, Michael Clark, these talks with the Taliban, are they likely to make any difference? Only at the, the the end of the day, as it were, it's this uh, concept I have of p- political cigarette papers. You know, before battles, a lot of uh, Afghans exchange cigarette papers with little messages written on, and the battle often doesn't take place because they negotiate at the 59th minute of the 11th hour. <clears throat> and I suspect that that's what will happen politically, that as we get up to the end of... 2014 and the possibility of whatever the post-Karzai regime is going to be, there'll be a deal which will be very Afghan. It won't be much anything that we can really have much effect on. That's what I suspect will happen. But and no, what kind of deal it. could it be? Could you envisage? Well, it'll be some sort of power sharing. I mean, the Taliban know, as Theo says, that, that uh, you know, the Taliban know that they've earned a right to, a, to a, a, a voice in government, a significant voice in government, but they also know that they can't control the whole country. And they are a different organisation now to the one that they were in 2000 2001, 2002. So, in a sense, they have become, I think, more realistic. They don't want to be lumbered with the the, the blame for another 20 years of civil war. But then they, they do believe they've earned a right to a significant voice, but not the total voice. Christopher, uh, a report in the New York Times this week has claimed the Americans are considering a complete pullout uh, at the end of 2014, this so-called zero option. Is that likely? Wait until September, no, October of this year. Uh, What will happen then is that the American commander in Afghanistan will send a report directly to President uh, Obama. And what that report says will probably weigh more heavily than anything other, including speculation that's going on at the Pentagon at the moment, on the the future sort of deployment of America or American forces and for how long in Afghanistan and I think in spite of everything that goes on and all the stuff that comes out we'd be do well to wait until that report in the autumn. Professor Theo Farrell um, after the end of 2014 when combat troops withdraw from Afghanistan what do you think will start happening in the country from what you've researched? Yeah, I mean, just I'll, just before I answer that, if I just can say what's been currently announced about the zero option, this is posturing by Washington. Washington is trying to apply pressure on President Karzai to conclude the bilateral security agreement. Uh, but there's no doubt that the Americans have a strategic interest in maintaining a military presence in Afghanistan. That's very clear. Uh, and, but really for us, what we have to focus on is the 2014 elections. They are the game changer. It is 
the elections offer the possibility to the transition to a post-Karzai regime, and that will unlock the peace talks, uh, because the, currently now the Taliban simply cannot contemplate negotiation with Karzai. And beyond into 2014, uh, 2014 beyond then, when we move to the NATO mission resolute support, um, the Americans will, will be determined to maintain a military presence for strategic reasons. And it will really depend on the shape of the post-Karzai regime after 2014. So really, actually, the date that I'm looking at is, is, is July 2014. OK, Professor Theo Farrell from, the, from King's College London, thank you for your time today. Thank you. This is BFBS. Sit Let's talk about briefly about a couple of other things in the news this week. First of all, the Guardian claimed today that the MOD is examining the idea of designating the Faslane Naval Base, which is home to Trident nuclear submarines, as sovereign UK territory if Scotland votes for independence next year. Downing Street is dismissing the report. Sir Christopher, we have talked about this before, haven't we? I'll tell you what's happening, shall I? Um, about once a month, the government department shoves out a report or a leak. It leaks directly to... It's got a list of papers and it leaks to them, right? And they're wonderful, scary stories. And the idea is to, is to stop the Scots voting for independence. At the moment, the MOD is betting on, I think, the average of the polls so far, or their MOD polling so far this year is 23%. 23% they believe will vote for independence. But every so often you get a... Scotland would be worse off financially. Scotland would be worse off financially. You won't get the deal you thought you would over Faslane, etc. The only interesting thing about all that is that um, if you wanted to move uh, Trident, it could probably take you 20 years to be able to do it. And cost how much? I mean, nobody knows. (laughs) Say 25 billions, which is, uh, you know, uh, people come up with these numbers. But the other thing is... There may be a few people who sit round and say, uh, well, what's the point in voting for the, uh, um, the you know, Scottish uh, democracy, as they would call it, um, because the, one main th- the main thing, a nuclear-free zone, ain't going to happen. There's another aspect of this. There may be some uh, in Whitehall saying, well, if this is going to be a tricky one, then perhaps we ought to rethink mm. uh, Trident. By the way, next week... Those reports when the report goes will be out. published, I think, on the future options for for, for, for for Trident. But one thing isn't off the off off the table is the fact that um, it will be a nuclear option and not a non-nuclear option. Michael Clark, um, say, listening to what Christopher was saying there about these kind of scare stories for independent Scotland, what what do you think the next story will be that comes out next month? Well, the next story will be about the report that's going to appear next week on, uh, I think, Tuesday at 12 o'clock at Rusi. Uh, I think it's due to be launched, and uh, it'll all it'll be what about... What do you mean you think? You better know you're the, you're the director. <laughs> well, put, well, put it this way. Is we're, it a scare story, Michael? No, Is no, that what you're saying? Well, we're, we're, we're sending the invitations out this afternoon. <laughs> Thank so, you. Um, as, of, as of now, the meeting is going ahead if nobody pulls it. Mm. But And so the, the, the alternative report will be launched then, and that, I think, will be a, a real talking point. Uh, the other issue, that the other sort of scare story or the other story, if the Faslane thing carries on, is not just the uh, the political side of Faslane, but the geographical side. The point is that you know British nuclear submarines leaving Faslane don't have very far to go before they can drop off the continental shelf into deep water where they're pretty safe. Mm. And that's not a very big lane to patrol and to keep clear, as it were, when submarines coming in and out. If they have to move it to, let's say, Devonport or somewhere in the south of of Britain, um, then the continental shelf is a lot further away and the security implications of that for future submarines are really quite huge, to be honest. Mm. Uh, Just another subject in the news this week. Uh, The former SAS sniper Danny Nightingale found guilty of illegally possessing 
using a pistol, more than 300 rounds of ammunition. Aside from all the legal arguments which we've looked at on the programme before, um, let's talk a bit about war trophies. I suppose it's really quite common, isn't it, Christopher, for people to bring them back? Yeah, they've always done so. They've always done so, but there are very, very strict rules. Um, and you, you've got to go along with them. And the argument in the army would be, of the general, the so-called Green Army, would be that sometimes special forces don't go along with rules. Uh, but I was talking. Are they trained to be a bit like that anyway? That's uh, not the whole well, point I think of it. their instinct is, is is to be that. And there's a, there's a nice swagger in, in 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 the regiment. But the uh, I was talking to somebody this morning. Uh, who was in? Uh, who came back from Iraq with his with his uh, 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 battalion, and they brought back all sorts of kit which was just lying around. But it was all detailed. It was numbered. It was photographed, etc. It's in the book, and it's now in the trophy room in his regiment. Now that's the way to do it. But to come back with a high-powered pistol and three hundred rounds of ammunition, um, that's quite a different deal. But it's in, what I find interesting is the way that Sergeant Nightingale had this huge support, public support, and that it is the, the this court-martial... It does seem, actually, Michael, at the moment... overlooked that. I mean, it is quite interesting, Michael, that at the moment military uh, personnel do seem to get, without any questioning, the support of the public. Yes. Do you think uh, that'll change post-Afghan uh, <clears throat> drawdown? Not necessarily, no. I mean, I think, you know, the public take different views about the military establishment and the management of the military and certainly the political side of it all. But the, you know, the boys and girls in uniform are always the darlings of the public and I don't think that will that will change very much. And so there is always this natural sympathy. And, and I have to say also, sometimes, I think the uh, military, they trade on that uh, and individuals trade on it. And, and uh, you know, in a way, they, they, they sometimes take for granted, individuals in the, in the military, they take for granted that what they do should somehow be legitimised because they're a boy or girl in uniform. Now, this month, General Nick Horton becomes the Chief of Defence Staff. Unlike a company where the CEO stays till he decides to go or is sacked, the CDS is a fixed-term job. So what do we know about him? Professor Michael Clark? I understand you know him quite well. Yeah, he's, uh, he's, a, he's a quiet Yorkshireman. Uh, you're Green Howard. He's got a sort of a boyish, mischievous smile. <laughs> he's he's really, he, he, he's somebody. It was David Richards, the man who's replacing you. David was a much higher-profile soldier uh, when he became CDS, and Nick Horton has been a lower-profile man because he he's been in the background, but he's extraordinarily bright and clever. He doesn't. He, he listens a lot. And when he speaks, he speaks with a tremendous degree of insight. And the things he, he's really interested in, not just current operational issues, but trying to conceptualise what our military is for in the post-modern world. So have you had a round of dinner then? Uh, I've had meals with him uh, and uh, I've chatted with him, certainly. And he, and he, he keeps his contacts open with, with other people. He, mm. he's, he's, a, he's a great listener and he's a very, very bright speaker. In a, but you've got to listen. He's a quiet speaker. Christopher, um, how long will he have the job for and how different will he be? I'm not sure how long. I mean, for say, let's say three years. Let's say it, it, that's a sort of... Unless Jock Stewart went on much longer. Day one, gets in there. First thing you, he knows instinctively is that nobody... He doesn't have to call anybody in the, in the services, sir. He is the top. In the top, it's rather like being the chairman of a large corporation. He really has to steer... And he's got to steer the army towards, especially to, towards 2020. He's got to steer the navy in in the two debates. One is the Trident debate we were talking about, and the other is that what you do about the carriers rather than sell them to the Indians, something like that. And then there's the RAF. What you know about uh, the future of the RAF? But he's got to do all that as a neutral, 
as a purple officer. I think it's the best job. It's got to be the be- apart from commanding a, a, a battalion. It's got to be the best job in the services. Uh, and uh, he's a Green Howard. Now, any Green Howard that I've ever met will tell you uh, it's about time that they had the CDS as well. <laughs> Michael Clark, um, first day in the job, what, what happens? Uh, first day, well, he's got lots of ideas, and f- but first day in the job, he'll find that he's immediately in the position, which he isn't quite in now as the vice chief, that he is, he's got to explain the military to the politicians and he's got to explain political realities to the military. He's the sort of buckle between two bits of leather um, <laughs> and he's immediately under that pressure on day one. Christopher? The late Terry Lewin, Admiral of the Fleet Terry Lewin, who was Chief of the Defence Staff, said to me once, to be CDS, the modern CDS, this purple CDS, where you have to go over to Downing Street, where you have to sell the military view, and you'll be found out nowadays because the opposition research to it all, including the Treasury especially, uh, is really up there with the top. He said you have to be sort of, in a strange little way, you have to be good in bed. (laughs) <laughs> and you have to be good in that bed of politics and financial goings on. Uh, and he said, and if you can't, if you're not, you let the other guys down. Well, you given, must never do given that. Given he and the Defence Secretary are both very softly spoken, there'll be so, lots of pillow talk going on, I suppose, <laughs> then. Um, gentlemen, that's all we have time for this week. Um, my thanks to all of our guests. If you'd like to join the debate, we're on Twitter. You can tweet us at BFBS SITREP. And remember, you can listen again to this week's programme on our website, bfbs.com slash SITREP. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.